There we are. I have been fascinated by chivalry, by the mystique of the Holy Grail for almost 50 years. I think I read my first book on King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table when I was 11 years old. And in the ensuing decades, I devoured everything I could find on the subject. But I did not really understand the Grail or its true history or its true meaning until I became Catholic. And today on No Nonsense Catholic, I want to share with you the physical, archaeological, literary, and documentary evidence that the Holy Grail is real and in the possession of the Holy Catholic Church. So welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion stops here. The, uh, the legend of the Holy Grail comes to us via the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And these are stories that captured the medieval imagination and were told and retold all throughout Christendom. The so-called Matter of Britain was just as popular in Germany and Spain and Italy and France as it was in England. Now, some of the tales harken back to old Welsh legends and folklore as source material. And some folks today want to claim that the stories of Arthur are really uh, a survival of pre-Christian paganism. And to be sure, Celtic mythology is, is full of magic swords and enchanted cups and cauldrons. But the fact that some medieval authors borrowed certain elements from ancient stories doesn't make them closet pagans any more than it does William Shakespeare, who borrowed from pre-Christian folklore to write uh, King Lear or Midsummer Night's Dream. And whatever their origin... The medieval Arthurian stories are thoroughly Christian in their symbolism and in their vocabulary. And also, despite this alleged common source in in old Celtic stories, the various versions of the Arthurian tales differ widely from author to author and from century to century and from country to country. You know, the stories that we know them in English come to us primarily from Sir Thomas Mallory, and his work, uh, Le Morte d'Arthur, which was actually a, a translation of the Norman French tales from earlier in the Middle Ages into English. That was done at the time of the War of the Roses back in the 1500s, or uh, 15th century, the 1400s. And then, of course, um, The Idols of the King by Alfred Lord Tennyson during the great kind of medieval revival in the 19th century. And then we have all the many lesser works, film and television and so on. But for our purposes... The question is, how did the Holy Grail enter into the stories of King Arthur? And for that matter, what does the word grail even mean? You know, it's an old English word. The old English word grail is actually derived from the Latin gradale, which means by degrees or by steps. So it's the source of the modern English word gradual. And the term gradale became associated with the vessels used at the medieval feast because it was served in courses. And, uh, and it was also the name given to a prayer of the traditional Latin Mass. The gradual of the traditional Latin Mass, or gradale, typically consists of a versicle of the Psalms, and it's the prayer that comes before the Alleluia and between the Epistle and the Gospel. Now, it became known as the gradual, or the gradale, because the scola would chant this prayer while the deacon ascended the steps, right, the steps, up to the pulpit, to sing the gospel. And so it became known uh, by this name, gradale in Latin and uh, grail in medieval English. So the prayer, the process, and the plate or cup all bear that same name. 
Now, in the year of our Lord, <clears throat> pardon me, 1210, these concepts all came together in the writing of an anonymous Cistercian monk with the addition of one important element. Now, the Cistercians are a part of the Benedictine family. In the 6th century, St. Benedict wrote a well-known treatise for his monks called The Steps of Pride, wherein he describes the process by which a holy monk can fall by degrees into the depths of sin, hence the steps of pride. Then in the 12th century, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the greatest light of the Cistercian order, turned that around with his famous work, The Steps of Humility which describes the process by which a sinner can rise to the heights of holiness. Now, this gradual process of sanctification is a blueprint for achieving Christian perfection. And in the quest of the Holy Grail, St. Bernard's Steps of Humility is presented in a popular format for the court, as opposed to the cloister. Namely, the story of Sir Galahad and his search for the cup of Christ. According to Pauline Matarasso in the introduction to her English translation of The Quest of the Holy Grail, quote, she says, The Grail itself is a symbol of God's grace. At once the dish of the Last Supper, the vessel which received the effusion of Christ's blood when his side was pierced, and in the text both chalice and ciborium. Its secrets are the mystery of the Eucharist unveiled. But how to get the cup of Christ, the cup of the Last Supper, to England? Well, the Benedictines found the perfect candidate in St. Joseph of Arimathea. Now, you'll remember that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were responsible for taking our Lord's body down from the cross. Uh, Joseph was also the owner of the Holy Holy Sepulchre, where our Lord was uh, entombed for three days. And according to a small-t tradition, he's also the owner of the cenacle, the upper room where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. So the Arthurian legend has Joseph coming uh, to England and bringing the gospel to England and bringing the grail along with him. Now, <laughs> there's no historical evidence for this, for this last, but and it's also presumed that the Benedictines, that the monks of Glastonbury Abbey promoted, or at least didn't discourage the popular notion that uh, Joseph of Arimathea founded a community at Glastonbury and uh, precisely to increase the prestige of their abbey. Well, in the story, in the Arthurian stories, the grail uh, is lost for a time, but then it reappears in a vision to King Arthur and Sir Galahad and the Knights of the Round Table on Pentecost Sunday. The story says that the air was filled with a sweet fragrance and the knights experienced visions, or in some versions were supplied with the food and drink that they liked the best. And then the grail vanishes as suddenly as it appeared. And this incident inspires the quest and the many adventures that the knights uh, go on as they seek the grail. Invariably, our heroes go on a spiritual journey, and only those who achieve great holiness, great personal holiness, are judged worthy to see the grail, or even approach the grail. So then, is the existence of the Holy Grail merely a matter of pious fiction? No, not hardly. 
See, there's no reason to assume that the cup of Christ, the cup he used to celebrate the Last Supper, uh, the first Holy Mass, would not have been preserved by the early church. But if so, where is it? Well, there have only ever been a few serious contenders for the real-life grail. And I'll do my best to describe them to you. Um, One is called the Arda Chalice. And it was discovered in Ireland back in 1847, a young boy digging for potatoes. And it's made of silver, and it's decorated with a silver gilt and enamel. And uh, it has a, a silver, a, a plain silver cup on the inside. Now, I think one of the reasons that this was identified as the grail, at least potentially, is because of the Venerable Bede, who mentions a silver chalice in his treatise on the Holy Land. But when we read it, what it says is, uh, in a street leading from the martyry, that's Pilate's palace, to Golgotha, was a shrine which covered the Lord's chalice, and through the grating the pilgrims used to touch and kiss it. The chalice was of silver and had two handles, and in it was the sponge which was offered to the Lord from which to drink. And of course, that's not what we typically think of when we think of the Holy Grail. And in any case, it has now been determined that the Arda chalice is of Celtic workmanship. It was found in Ireland because it was made in Ireland, and it dates from the 8th or 9th century. So uh, it's not the chalice mentioned by the Venerable Bede, and it's certainly not the Holy Grail. But silver cups were common enough in the first century, in the uh, the time of our Lord. So another candidate is the so-called Chalice of Antioch which was discovered there by some Arab workmen uh, around 1910. And the Chalice of Antioch has uh, an interior bowl. It's a plain silver bowl that was also somewhat ambitiously identified as the Cup of the Last Supper, Uh, the the inner cup being enclosed in an elaborately decorated shell with a little short stem and a foot. Um, It was initially conjectured to be a chalice, but later archaeological finds have suggested that it's more likely a 6th century standing oil lamp. And it has a decoration of Jesus and the apostles, most likely to represent Christ as the light of the world, which is quite appropriate for a lampstand. Now, uh, another and probably the most popular other contender is the so-called Nantios cup. Um, It's a small olive wood cup, about five inches in diameter. And the Nantios tradition... Um, states that during the dissolution of the monasteries under King Henry VIII, the monks of Glastonbury were preparing their escape to another monastery when the king's commissioners arrived sooner than than expected. So the monks were forced to flee for their lives, and they they went to nearby Nantios House, where they lived the rest of their lives working on the estate for a man named Powell. That is, until the last monk on his deathbed allegedly revealed to the lord of the manor that they had brought with them from Glastonbury the Holy Grail. And the monk supposedly entrusted the grail to the Powell family, quote, until the church shall claim her own, that is, until Judgment Day. Unfortunately, this tradition only dates from Victorian times. Nonetheless, the Nantios Cup attracted many pilgrims with its supposed healing powers all the way until 1952, when the last of the Powells died. Now we'll find out what happened to the Nantios Cup and all about the real Holy Grail when we return with lots more right here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show. So I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day I grabbed his phone and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show in the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, St. Paul says... So there abide faith, hope, and love, these three. According to St. Ignatius of Antioch, faith is the beginning and love is the end. And God is the two of them brought into unity. Then comes everything else that makes up a Christian. May God grant that we may attain all the virtues that make for authentic followers of His Son. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're talking about the Holy Grail and one of the contenders for a real-life Holy Grail, which is called the Nantios Cup, a small wooden cup that was allegedly brought to, uh, given into the hands of the Powell family at the Nantios estate back in the days of King Henry VIII. Now, um, as I mentioned, a good many pilgrims were attracted there, and in the 1950s, uh, when they finally stopped, the, the cup itself was no longer in very good shape. Uh, if you ever see a picture of it, you'll see that it's, uh, it's quite deteriorated, and uh, apparently also uh, a goodly number of the pilgrims that were allowed to drink from it to, uh, you know, experience its alleged healing powers, also would bite off little chunks to keep as a souvenir. Um, so uh, also, if you see a picture, it actually quite resembles a half coconut shell, which for uh, fans of Monty Python will suggest another grail connection, right? Oh, come, Patsy. <laughs> All right, the Monty Python fans know who you are. Uh, All right, so where do we find the genuine grail? Well, there are clues to the fate of the Holy Grail in a lesser-known piece of grail literature by the German poet Wolfram von Essenbach. Essenbach. Originally, or ironically rather, Wolfram's Parzival, which is German for Percival, 
is an epic poem of some 25,000 verses, which is arguably second only to Dante's Divine Comedy as a masterpiece of medieval literature. And I suspect the fact that it was written in Middle High German probably accounts for its comparative obscurity. Anyway, I believe that Wolfram's account of the quest is inspired in part by the real history of the Cup of Christ. Wolfram locates the, the Grail in a remote castle, which is far from the misty shores of England, in Munselvash, the Wild Mountains. There, in this mighty fortress, the Grail was guarded for generations by a sacred brotherhood. Now, Wolfram did not claim to have seen the Grail himself, but he based his Parsifal on Spanish traditions that he learned from a Provençal poet named Quixote, who in turn claimed to have learned of the Grail from a document that he saw in Toledo. In fact, many of the place names in Parsifal are presumably High Middle German for real-life locations in Spain, and the Salvage are uh, presumed to be the Spanish Pyrenees, those wild mountains that were home to the hidden caves and fortified monasteries um, that from which were launched the Reconquista, the Christian reconquest of Spain, after the Muslim invasion of the 8th century. So in a rather enigmatic style, um, a rather enigmatic style, good Wolfram von Essenbach, or Essenbach um, <clears throat> tells us uh, about the Holy Grail variously as a cup or a dish or a stone. And in a moment, we'll discover how the Holy Grail can be all of those things and how it's found its way uh, from the Last Supper, the table of the Last Supper, not to England, but to Spain. And the cup that was used by our Lord to institute the Eucharist was certainly not forgotten after his ascension. The Bible says that the apostles met several times in that very upper room uh, from you know, Holy Saturday all the way to, to Pentecost. And, you know, a pet peeve, the cynical, right, the upper room was not some low-roofed hovel where the apostles sat around a campfire eating the Passover off the floor like you see in the Jesus movies. The Bible tells us that on Pentecost Sunday, there were more than 130 people gathered in that room. The apostles, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Holy Women, and 120 disciples, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who likely lived in a Roman-style villa that was spacious enough to comfortably accommodate such a large group of people. In any event, when St. Peter left Jerusalem for Antioch and then Rome, the canon of the traditional, or, uh, I'm sorry, he took the Holy Grail with him. And we have a clear indication that for more than two and a half centuries, Peter and then his successors used the chalice of the Last Supper to celebrate the Holy Mass. In fact, we've got documentary evidence in the ancient Roman canon. The canon of the traditional mass is, uh, Latin Mass is called Eucharistic Prayer Number 1 in the New Rite. And it was, in fact, the only Eucharistic prayer in the Roman Catholic Church uh, before the New Missal of 1969. But tradition tells us that the form of consecration of the Roman canon has been fixed since apostolic times. According to Pope Innocent III, writing in, uh, well, he reigned from 1198 to 1216, he said, In truth, 
the apostles received the form of the words from Christ himself, and the church received it from the apostles themselves. The Council of Trent also affirms that the Roman canon is apostolic. Now, for our purposes, it certainly goes back to the 3rd century. Now, why is all of this important? Well, because the Roman canon was unique amongst ancient liturgies, all of which echo the words of Scripture. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and giving it to his disciples, said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. That's the account from uh, Matthew's Gospel. Now, all of the various Catholic liturgies historically follow the Scriptures. Then he took the cup, or taking the chalice. It is the Roman canon alone that says, Achipiens et hunc preclarum calicem. Then he took this precious chalice, or in the Old English, this goodly chalice. Not the chalice, but this chalice. Why? Because for the better part of the first three centuries of the Christian era, the popes in Rome celebrated Holy Mass with the very cup used by Christ at the Last Supper. Now, how did that cup get to Spain then? (laughs) Well, history records that shortly before his death at the hands of Emperor Valerian, Pope Sixtus II was ordered to hand over the treasures of the church to the empire. Instead, he instructed his deacon, St. Lawrence, to distribute the church's assets among the needy rather than give them up to the Romans. So on the day appointed uh, to hand over the church's wealth, St. Lawrence arrives with a crowd of poor people and proclaims to the emperor, these are the treasures of the church. Well, Valerian was not amused, and uh, St. Lawrence was martyred, as we know, by being roasted on a gridiron, but not before sending the holy chalice to his native town of Huesca by the hands of a Spanish Christian soldier and accompanied by a letter asking his parents to keep it safe. Now, unfortunately, that letter is lost, but it is attested to by a 12th-century document of the Canon of Zaragoza, a 14th-century letter of King Martin V of Aragon, and the recently discovered 6th-century letter of St. Donato. So the Grail went to Spain, where it remains to this day. The Spanish call it El Santo Caliz, and and, uh, um, I'll I'll try and describe it for you. at the top is a cup. A, uh, uh, the cup itself is, is semi-spherical, about three and a half inches in diameter, and it's made of a dark red agate, which is a uh, banded type of chalcedony, or uh, also known as red carnelian. The base, uh, you know, imagine a, a chalice. The, the base of the chalice is a much larger semi-elliptical bowl, also made of chalcedony. And the cup and the base are joined together by a gold stem with a rounded nut in the middle, like a typical liturgical chalice. And it has two gold handles. And then the edge of the base is covered with a gold strip. And there's four gold arteries on which are encrusted two rubies, two emeralds, and 27 pearls. Okay, and when, you, when we have this up on YouTube, on our the No Nonsense Catholic playlist on Virgin Most Powerful Radio's YouTube channel, that'll be sometime tonight or uh, at least by tomorrow morning. Uh, the separate shows will all be up. I'll make sure to put in the thumbnail a photograph of the Holy Grail so you can actually see what I'm talking about. But the, the question is, how do I know, or how do you know that what I'm describing is really the Holy Grail? 
You know, I remember talking with a friend of mine, a deacon about this about 20 years ago. And he was, he was, you know, three kinds of upset. He said, this, that chalice in Valencia, that's not the cup of Christ. He said, Jesus wouldn't have had a, a gold chalice all covered in jewels. And of course, he's, he's perfectly right. Uh, you know, obviously there's no Christian chalice at the cenacle of the Last Supper. But Jesus consecrated the wine in, in a common cup. But it's only the upper cup of the, what we call the Holy Grail today, that was on the table at the Last Supper. Right? It has no handles, it has no stem, just like, like it's like a Chinese teacup, okay? just a simple cup made of uh, agate. And archaeologists believe that that cup was produced in a workshop in Palestine or possibly Syria or Egypt, somewhere between the 4th century BC and the 1st century AD. And cups of that type were, were ubiquitous. They were common throughout the Holy Land uh, at the time of Christ. And so the conclusion is that upper cup that holds the, the cup that holds the wine in the Santa Calice is precisely what you would have expected to find on the table of a well-to-do man of the first century Jerusalem. Okay, but, but Wolfram, of course, doesn't just say that the grail is made of stone. He calls the grail lapis exchalis, which is stone from heaven, or lapis exilis, which means stone of exile, which indicates to me that he had knowledge of the, the grail as it was in the Middle Ages with the addition of the gold and the jewels. Why? Scripture. Scripture tells us that the gates of heaven are made of pearl and the streets are paved in gold and God's throne is made of, of a great emerald. And there's ruby and jasper and red carnelian and chalcedony. All of, are mentioned as being in heaven amongst some other gems, I, I think 12 in all. Now, there's a quaint medieval legend that explains how these heavenly gems uh, are found on earth. See, apparently, uh, they were in Lucifer's crown, you see. So uh, when, when uh, his crown fell to earth from heaven, when that old serpent was thrown down by St. Michael, the, the gold and the jewels came with him. Now, this is an old wives' tale, to be sure. But it explains Wolfram's reference to stones of heaven and stones of exile, because all of those stones are represented on the Holy Grail. So, what happened when the Grail left Rome? Well, of course, we know it was sent to the home of the parents of St. Lawrence, and it was kept there in a farmhouse on the outskirts of Wesca for nearly three centuries, about 275 years. After the construction of the cathedral at Wesca in 553, the cup was transferred there. And alas, its days there were numbered because the year 712 saw the Muslim invasion of Spain. And rumor had it that the, uh, the Moors were searching for the Grail, so the cup was moved to the southern Pyrenees, passing through various chapels and churches and monasteries over the next few centuries. Finally, in the year 12, or 1071, the Holy Grail arrived at the monastery of San Juan de la Peña, which is huge and fortress-like, um, and I believe the inspiration for Wolfram's Grail Castle the sacred brotherhood of grail keepers, the Benedictine monks who guarded and venerated the chalice. And so we're going to talk about more on that and the fate of the grail after it arrived there when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. If you shop on Amazon.com, there's an easy way to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Just visit smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center under the desired charity. Now, when you log into your Amazon account and purchase products, a portion of it will automatically go to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio at no cost to you. Thanks in advance for supporting CRC and VMPR. And may God richly bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Hey, by the way, it is the 11th of November, and that means it is Armistice Day, or as we call it now, Veterans Day. And so I want to take just a quick moment and say thank you to all the veterans that are listening, all the veterans that are members of your family. May God bless all our veterans and their families, and thank you for your service. We appreciate what you do here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, the sacrifices you made and the service that you gave to our beloved country. All right, so happy Veterans Day. Now, we've been talking about the Holy Grail, and when we left off, we were talking about how it arrived uh, in 1071 at the monastery of San Juan de la Peña. And I should mention that in medieval Spain, the difference between a church and a fortress was blurred by necessity. And San Juan de la Peña is literally carved into the mountainside beneath a huge uh, outcropping of solid rock. And that was the home of the Holy Grail during the Middle Ages. It was virtually impregnable and inaccessible, and not surprisingly, that's entirely consistent with the Grail romances. The 328 years that the Grail spent at San Juan de la Peña is one of the most important periods in its long history. And then from the year 1134 comes the first explicit documentary evidence, uh, a documentary reference to the Holy Grail at San Juan de la Peña. 
According to the testimony of the canon of Zaragoza, quote, in a marble chest is the cup in which Christ our Lord consecrated his blood, which St. Lawrence sent to his homeland in Huesca. So that original document, by the way, is still preserved in the monastery. In the year 1190, Chrétien de Troyes made his first, the first mention of the Holy Grail in Arthurian literature. In 1209, Wolfram von Eisenbach writes his Parzival, which was the inspiration for Richard Wagner's opera uh, of the same name, Parsifal. And in 1210, our Cistercian monk writes the quest of the Holy Grail, which introduces the character of Sir Galahad and is an allegory of St. Bernard of Clairvaux's steps of humility and pride. In the year 1322, Don Jaime II, king of Valencia and Aragon, purchased a dish from which Jesus allegedly ate the Paschal lamb at the Last Supper. He bought it from uh, Abulfat Muhammad, the Sultan of Egypt, and it was believed that this vessel, it is believed that this is the vessel that became the base of the Holy Grail, of the Santa Calice. Now, although it is of dubious authenticity, the symbolism is clear. The Last Supper was, for the followers of Christ, the, the final legal Passover, and so the dish is turned mouth down to furnish a base for the Eucharistic chalice. In 1399, Martin V, a.k.a. Martin el Umano, King of Aragon, Valencia, Mallorca, Sardinia, Sicily, Corsica, and Sicily. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, and backed by anti-Pope Benedict XIII. Um, by the way, if you're keeping score, the true Pope at the time was Boniface IX. But he was backed up by the anti-Pope, Benedict XIII. And they forced the abbot of San Juan de la Peña to surrender the Holy Grail to King Martin, much to the distress of the Holy Benedictines. A notorial deed records that... Uh, King Martin received, quote, the stone chalice wherein our Lord Jesus Christ consecrated his precious blood. The Holy Grail was taken by the king to his palace in Zaragoza and then to the royal residence in Barcelona. To mollify the offended religious of San Juan de la Peña, the king presented the brothers with a gold chalice adorned with emeralds. Unfortunately, some 95 years later, a fire in the monastery melted that golden cup. Uh, the year 1410 saw the death of Martin V, and in 1416, his successor, King Alfonso V, transferred the Holy Grail to the royal palace in Valencia. In 1437, Don Juan, King of Navarre, and brother of Alfonso V, gave the Grail into the keeping of the Cathedral of Valencia as security for a loan that he had secured from the church to support the conquest of Naples. Now, for many years, the kings of Aragon would try and ransom the grail back uh, from the cathedral, but they never managed to raise the f- sufficient funds. And finally, the cathedral of Valencia gave the kingdom of Aragon 40,000 gold ducats, and in return, the cathedral was named Perpetual Custodian of the Santo Calice. In the 16th century, they started having um, solemn processions with the grail that they still have today on the Feast of Corpus Christi. And in 1744, oh, this is a a sad moment. In 1744, during Holy Week, a priest of the cathedral, Don Vicente Frigola, dropped the Holy Grail during Mass. (laughs) Can you imagine? And the upper cup broke in two. And Don Vicente was so mortified that he took to his bed and and died a few days later. Of course, the chalice was repaired, but there are two small fissures that can still be seen at the lip of the cup. Then from 1809 to 1813, during 
the uh, war for Spain's independence against the French troops of Napoleon, the Grail was moved to from, or let's see, it was moved to Alicante, Mallorca, and Ibiza, respectively. In 1882, Richard Wagner wrote his opera Parsifal. And in 1916, the Capilla del Santo Calice, the Chapel of the Holy Grail, was built inside the Cathedral of Valencia, and that is where you will find the Holy Cup today. Unlike the years 1936 to 1939, during the Spanish Civil War, what with the communists vandalizing Catholic churches and destroying relics, the Grail was given for safekeeping to a Catholic laywoman, Doña Maria Sabina Sui, and she kept the Grail walled up in her kitchen behind the stove until the end of the war. And then in 1940, Adolf Hitler, uh, as we know, enthralled by the music of Richard Wagner and the legends of the Holy Grail, he sent Heinrich Himmler to the monastery of Montserrat in Catalonia, where they erroneously believed the Grail to be located, with the intention, of course, of confiscating it in the name of the Third Reich. Fortunately, Himmler, 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 I added a syllable for him, Himmler arrived in Catalonia just as word of the plot reached the Cathedral of Valencia. And so, just as with the Muslims and the communists, divine providence kept the grail safe from the Nazis as well. In 1959, the year of my birth, no less, 1959, the Vatican was presented with the results of an exhaustive historical investigation of the Santo Calice. And Pope St. John XXIII granted a papal indulgence to pilgrims that visit Valencia Cathedral for the purpose of venerating the Holy Chalice. That means that we have the testimony of the Catholic Church through the authority of the Roman pontiff himself that this cup with pious faith may be venerated as the authentic cup of the Last Supper. This goodly chalice, the true Holy Grail. And that same year, in honor of the 17th centenary of the Holy Grail's arrival in Spain, a delegation carried the sacred cup in procession along its many hosting places. And along the, the way, the crowds of the faithful stopped and knelt down to venerate the Holy Chalice. And, and we, it was taken to Huesca, back to the, the home of Saints Orencio and Paciencia, the parents of St. Lawrence. And then finally, it made its triumphant return to the Grail Castle, to, to the monastery of San Juan de la Peña. And then there they had what they called a Parsifalian procession, where the Holy Grail was taken to the lower monastery, the Monasterio Bajo, where the sacred cup had been kept for, for so many years. And it was personally carried by the nuncio of His Holiness John XXIII. And uh, at the end of the procession, the nuncio, <coughs> nuncio placed the Santo Calice in the exact spot where it had been kept during the Middle Ages. And then in honor of this great occasion, there was an orchestra that came in and performed selections from Wagner's opera Parzival in the monastery cloister. Then the Grail processed through several more towns, including Zaragoza, until it finally returned to the cathedral in Valencia. Then in 1960, Antonio Beltran, the head of the Department of Archaeology for the Universidad, Universidad de Zaragoza, I'm sorry, my Spanish is so atrocious, the University of Zaragoza, in collaboration with other European scholars, published the conclusion of their exhaustive study of the Holy Grail. And I quote, There is no evidence against the possibility this chalice would have been used by Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. 
1982, St. John Paul II visited Spain to venerate the Holy Grail. And he became the first pope in 1,700 years to celebrate Mass with the cup of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Holy Father celebrated a solemn Mass of priestly ordination, wherein more than 100 new priests received holy orders. During that visit, he was made Knight of Perpetual Honor of the Holy Chalice by the Confraternity of the Santa Calice. Then in 1994, the Holy Grail made another pilgrimage to San Juan de la Peña, and in 1996, members of the confraternity went on pilgrimage to the Basilica of St. Lawrence in Rome to thank him for sending the Holy Grail to Spain. Now, in what I would say is a masterpiece of understatement, Salvador Aleo, a Grail historian, says, The sacred chalice is not known sufficiently either within or outside of Spain. And that is certainly true. But now you know. And I hope you understand why it's important, because according to Don Salvador, the grail is valuable because it is is a sign and a figure of the institution of the Eucharist. And this is much greater than any historical vestige. For when the mystery of the grail is revealed, one realizes that it is in no way an esoteric enigma. What it encloses is the most dramatic, romantic, and sublime story humanity has ever known, the story of the Word made man and Eucharist. And so here ends the quest that we've, we've found the true grail. And more importantly, we've, we've discovered its true meaning. The medieval authors were trying to tell us in the tales of King Arthur what Vatican II tried to tell us as well, that the call to holiness is universal and that Christ's promise to be with us all days is fulfilled by his presence in the Holy Eucharist. In other words, at the consecration, every chalice is the Holy Grail. Every chalice is this goodly chalice. And that's no nonsense. Okay, we are going to come back and talk some more. Actually, um, it is November. It's the, the month of the Holy Souls in Purgatory. We're going to be talking about that next week, along with uh, the uh, devotion to the Our Lady of Sorrows. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit about the use of the term Holy Ghost. So stay tuned for that, and we'll be back with lots more right after this. Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com code VMPR 
Live Horn Free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. Jesus said in Luke 17, When you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have only done our duty. According to St. John of the Cross, God is pleased with the little deeds we do in secret. He takes more pleasure in these than in a multitude of grand works that we may do out of the desire to be seen by others. May God help us to do the things that please Him and not just to appear great in the eyes of others. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and great to have you along with us. I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, presentation about the Holy Grail. It was pretty packed in. You know, I do a um, a PowerPoint presentation for that when I go and speak live. If that's something you're interested in, you know, you can always contact me by going to my website, which is matthewarnold.org, matthewarnold.org, or you can go to nonsensecatholic.com. Either one of those, you can use the contact uh, button and, and uh, send me a message, and I will do my best to uh, accommodate you if you're ever interested in having me come out and speak. And speaking of that, I'm going to be out in Temecula on Monday of next week doing a Theology on Tap talking about the Crusades, so another medieval topic that's uh, close to my heart. So anyway, matthewonnell.org, nononsense.com, uh, if you need to get a hold of me for any reason. I'd love to hear from you. Speaking of which, we received a, um email at Virgin Most Powerful the other day, and I'm sorry to say I don't have it in front of me, so I won't quote it directly. But the gist of it is that uh, this person was, uh, was kind of righteously offended by, I guess, my use, because I'm the one that does it most often. Uh, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> pardon me. My use of the term Holy Ghost. Uh, in reference to the third person of the Blessed Trinity, and when I say uh, some of the traditional prayers here on the program. Now, uh, this person said, and I, I'm paraphrasing because I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but basically, spiritus is translated spirit, period. So knock it off. Right? Stop saying Holy Ghost. Uh, you know, that it seemed really riled up by this. And I, I just wanted to say a word about translations, and about uh, biblical translations especially. You know, in the Bible, the word that we translate in English as spirit is, in the Hebrew, it's ruach, and in the Greek, it's pneuma. And it means spirit, but it also means breath, and it also means wind, and or spirit, or ghost, you know, depending upon the context. So take, for example, Acts 2, uh, 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 2. 
and I'll, I'll compare the, the Latin Vulgate with the Douay Reims English translation. Et factus et repente de celo sonus, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, tamquam advenientis spiritus vehementis, as of a mighty wind coming, et replevit totum domum ubi erant sedentes, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You notice that, <coughs> pardon me, spiritus is translated into English as wind. Spiritus vehementis, a mighty wind. Now, by the logic of this person, it should have been translated spirit. Now, obviously, it's, it's rendered as wind because the English translation is meant to provide the reader with a true sense of the original. And the words spirit and wind are not synonymous in English. The distinction between spirit and ghost is made for the same reason. Webster's gives the primary definition of ghost, okay, a real dictionary. So don't, you know, don't go online and, you know, to the People's Dictionary and, and hope to find something else. Real dictionary, Webster's. The primary definition of ghost is the seat of life or intelligence. Comes from the old English word ghast which means spirit, but it means that, again, it's, but it's personal. In fact, one of, the, uh, one of the meanings is person. And so for many centuries, the third person of the Blessed Trinity was referred to exclusively as the Holy Ghost, because the word ghost refers to a person and not to an abstraction. All right, a cursory look at classic English Bibles show that in regard to God, the word spirit is used for the action or movement or inspirations of God whereas Holy Ghost is used for the third person of the Trinity. And the reason is that the English word spirit is commonly used to describe an enthusiasm or a feeling or a quality or a movement. So, for example, team spirit, or he's got a lot of spirit, or get into the spirit of it, or the spirit of Vatican II, etc. Any of which would be a heresy if it were applied to the third person of the Holy Trinity, because the Holy Ghost is not an impersonal force. He is God. St. John says God is love and only persons can love. Only persons can will the good of another. Abstractions cannot. The distinction between ghost and spirit is also evident in the official English translations of the prayers of the extraordinary form of the Mass. Okay, so my, I, I go to the Extraordinary Form of the Mass every Sunday and Holy Day, and in my missal, there's Latin on one side and English on the other, and wouldn't you, you know, uh, be amazed if when it says Spiritus Sancti, it says Holy Ghost. Even some of the prayers that they still sing in the Novus Ordo, come Holy Ghost at all. So the exclusive use of the word spirit in relation to the third person of the Blessed Trinity, um, in biblical translations, I mean, of course, it started amongst the Protestants, and it only became common amongst Catholics after the Second World War. And you can find um, prayer books, for example, where, where, you know, in the first half of the 20th century that would use the word, um, the term Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit more or less interchangeably. But it was only after Vatican II that the Church started using Holy Spirit, uh, applying that exclusively to the third person of the Trinity in official Catholic English translations. So I'll grant you, you never hear Holy Ghost at the Novus Ordo. But there's no prohibition <laughs> against using the term. And of course, it remains uh, in common usage 
especially amongst traditional Catholics in their own missals, and also in the Anglican use liturgy of the uh, the Catholics of the Anglican Ordinariate that was set up by Pope Benedict XVI. So uh, I appreciate your comments, and I don't mean to offend your ears, but I'm not going to stop saying Holy Ghost. Okay. Uh, you know, and while we're on that topic, and I don't really have time for this, but I'm going to hit it just quickly, is also the... Um, the use of thee, thine, thine, versus you and yours. This is something that's kind of a pet peeve with me, not because I care about archaic language so much, nor do I have a problem with modern uh, translations. I really don't. I don't have a problem with the with uh, you know the Bible translators using the term Holy Spirit. I don't, you know, I'm not upset that they use you and yours. I understand language changes, and they're trying to reflect uh, modern, common English. Uh, expressions. The problem is that you're already losing something in the translation, and the less formal our English becomes, the more gets lost. For example, I'll use a quick example of the thee, thine, versus you and yours. Um, Traditionally, when you translate Latin into English, thee, thy, thine, thou are all uh, singular, whereas you and yours are plural. Okay, that's why at the Holy Mass, um, the, the priest says, Dominus vobiscum, and we reply, et cum spiritu tuo. Now, that's the Latin. In English, that's the Lord be with you, meaning you collectively, you plural. And the response is, et cum spiritu tuo, and with thy spirit. Now, I know they don't translate it like that in the Novus Ordo, but that's, the, that's that distinction. Because the priest is talking to the crowd, and the crowd is talking to the individual priest. And it actually shows forth the difference between, you know, the, the, the real difference between the ordained priesthood and the common priesthood of the faithful. Another example would be, I, I remember talking to a Protestant guy about uh, uh, the primacy of St. Peter. And I talked about that verse where uh, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. And once, when you're once converted, uh, confirm your brothers. And he said, he's not talking about Peter there specifically. He's talking to Peter, but not about Peter. Because he says, Satan has sifted you like wheat, that he means all the apostles. And I prayed for you, he means all the apostles. And when you're converted, confirm your brethren. He's talking about all the apostles confirming the, their, their disciples, the early church. And you know what? There's nothing in that English translation to say that that interpretation, which he undoubtedly got through his denomination or his pastor, is wrong. But if you look at the Douay Reims, or even the old King James Bible, you're going to see that Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. And you, obviously, you is plural there, because to sift means to separate, right? Uh, Satan wants to tear you guys apart, wants to, wants to separate the apostles. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and that once thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So it's very clear that he's talking about Peter, and it shows forth very clearly Peter's leadership in the early church. Satan's trying to break up the band, but you're the leader, and so I'm praying for you specifically, because Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, and Peter is going to become the visible head of the church. He is going to be the vicar of Christ on earth. He's going to step into the leadership role that's being vacated by our good Lord Jesus Christ upon his ascension into heaven. So St. Peter and all the apostles, yes, with the help of the Holy Ghost, yes. But uh, there is a hierarchy there. You know, I used to tell my, um, uh, I used to teach confirmation for a little while. 
And I teach RCIA now, of course. And uh, I was actually filling for my wife doing a confirmation. And I asked the kids one day what it was about the Catholic Church that no other Christian church has. And they're going, and they had, you know, different ideas. Oh, the rosary. It's like, no, other, ca- other Christians pray the rosary. Anglicans pray the rosary, for example. Oh, well, it's uh, uh, the priesthood. No, the Orthodox have valid priesthood. In fact, they've got uh, apostolic succession. Oh, well, it's the sacraments. It's the Eucharist. No, you know, they have that too. Even the old Catholics have, uh, you know, valid orders and valid Eucharist. So, and they, and they just couldn't come up with it. And I said, well, think about it. It's the Pope. Only Catholics recognize the supremacy of the Pope, that he is taking the place of our Lord as leader of the church on earth. He's not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, but he's the visible head because we need that, obviously. Um, and, that's, and that's one of those things that even though the, um, some of the Orthodox recognize, I mean, everybody recognizes that he's the Bishop of Rome, right, because that's just the reality, and uh, some of our Orthodox uh, brethren uh, accept that he um, has the primacy, that he is the first amongst the bishops. But they would say, uh, prima inter pares, that he's the first amongst equals. It's only in the Catholic Church that we recognize that he's not only first, he not only has primacy, but supremacy. And that can be lost, that those understandings are made clear with the use of this formal English, at least for, for people in the Anglophone world. And I think, personally, we need all the help we can get, and that, my friends, is no nonsense. All right, uh, thank you for being with us uh, this week. Really appreciate you uh, sharing this time with me here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Once again, happy Veterans Day uh, to all those who served. God bless you and your families, and thank you. Thank you for our freedom. Thank you for your service. I have a son who's in the military right now who's picking up where you left off. So God bless you. Also, next week, we're going to come back. It is the month of the Holy Souls. We're going to be talking about purgatory. We're going to be talking about the Holy Souls and devotion to uh, helping the Holy Souls in purgatory. Also, a little bit about Our Lady of Sorrows and lots, lots more when we come back with more no-nonsense Catholic next week, same time, same station here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. May God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic Audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic Audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.